Welcome to Strong and Free, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the information that you need on the topics of the day. No bias, no conjecture, just facts. So, let's go. Hi everybody, welcome to Strong and Free, podcast dedicated to providing you with the information you need on the topics of the day. This is going to be an interesting podcast because Hun and I are going to talk a little bit about populism. Um, populism has had its fair share of news coverage and um, there are, uh, you know, Donald Trump in the United States, elements of populism all throughout his election campaign and throughout his platform and throughout his policies. Um, And now Maxime Bernier, some have said, is a right-wing populist in Canada. Um, So I want to talk to you, Hun. What are your thoughts about this recent rise, embrace of populism by the general public? I think populism is the, the antithesis to some of the problems that may emerge from the existing systems, hmm. especially in a, in a Canadian context. In, in response to, for example, um, red tape, people might be endorsing populism as this new solution to that problem. And it's a global phenomenon. Uh, You know, you see Duterte, Donald Trump. And I wonder why, because in, in asking that question, I am suggesting that it's not just merely a coincidence. I think there's something going on between the global, uh, electorate, and it, it's something that we simply just can't ignore. And mm-hmm. uh, that's probably why there is a lot of coverage in the media and whatnot. What do you think are, I mean, populism, I guess we should start with a definition. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one, yeah. I mean, because there's populism on both sides, yep. on the right and the left. So it's not just um, Donald Trump and right-wingers or... Yeah, there's left-wing populists that are throughout noted throughout history. Um, so how about you and I try to determine what we think is the definition of populism? So for me, to me, it's like an, anti, uh, an anti-establishment base. Mm-hmm. So very much like these politicians have run amok and the establishment is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I'm going to enact policies that may not provide the optimal, uh, benefit, but hits that nerve Mm -hmm. that you also feel like corrupt politicians, corrupt system, um, um, potentially anti-immigrant, potentially pro-immigrant. Um, but I'm going to hit that nerve and I'm going to be anti-establishment. Is that generally what you would consider a populist movement? Yeah, but also I think it really changes on uh, the eyes of the the beholder. Mm-hmm. And it's so context-sensitive. Yeah. But at the same time, we know that sentiments of populism is is not just confined to one country. It's a right. very global thing, as I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really interested as to to examine why, and but the the problem in doing that is because the the national context of 
populist sentiments are are so Diverse. different. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? One thing that probably unifies all populist movements is their uh, when the good times get bad. So once the good times stop rolling, <laughs> uh, people get worried about their future, and they start thinking that wow this government really isn't working for me. So for example, right here in Toronto, a condo outside my walls here costs $600,000. Wow. 600 grand for a typical one bedroom condo in downtown Toronto. Now, salaries have not increased the way condo prices have. So for 600 grand, you're getting 600 square feet, um, a box in the sky, as some people say, and salaries haven't increased. But... There's a lot of foreign investments and foreign ownership of mm-hmm. condos in Toronto. Um, the numbers vary. Some say it's like less than 10%. Some say it's over 30%. So it's really hard to determine. And I don't know like, if statistically we collect that. But here's an idea. If condo prices get to 800000 and 900000 and yet salaries, especially for our young people, continue to flatline and just keep up with inflation and nothing more... The more prices of housing gets to that point where it outstrips the inflation rate by double digits, suddenly people are like, well, I went to school. I did everything by the book. I have a stable job that pays me very well. And yet I can't afford to live in the city that, in which I work. And so the system gets so dire and a politician might come along and say, you know what? You're completely right. These politicians have not... Um, uh, created an infrastructure for either your salaries to to rise with housing or have allowed developers to come in, buy up this land, set a price that's astronomically high, knowing you can never afford it, but others can in other income classes. And suddenly you feel like everybody's against me and I'm trying to be successful in this economy. Mm-hmm. Let me turn my attention to a populist politician who hears what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Sure. I think that's kind of part of the reason. Yeah. And one of the biggest questions about populism is whether the sentiment is legitimate. Right. And that's the, essentially, I think that's the only thing that matters because anybody can complain. Yes. Really. And. Uh, that that kind of a complaint knows no political wing. It yeah. doesn't, you know, it's not confined just to the to the supporters of the NDP or the Conservatives. Right. So the, the, I think the only question is, like, is it a legitimately found concern that is that's in which we can establish a, a known elite? in right. which we can establish a known establishmentarian system hmm. that is working against a particular group. You know what, that's interesting, because as you were saying that, I w- immediately thought about Tommy Douglas in Saskatchewan in the CCF, who basically said coming out of the war, there's so many people who simply can't make enough to survive and take care of healthcare. We need to make sure healthcare is public. And... You know, for some people, it was a crazy idea at the time. But like you say, there were enough people who saw that the current establishment just simply wasn't working in their favor. And suddenly, Tommy Douglas, who some might consider a left-wing populist at the time, 
is now revered as the father of public edu- public health care today. And, you know, was CBC one of the greatest Canadians that ever lived. And so sometimes a populist movement hits that nerve at the right time, at the right place, where people are that question questioning the current establishment and concerned about their own futures, where they're ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater and give all credence to what Tommy Douglas would have been considered 20 years prior, which would be a communist, a socialist, you know, uh, someone who was, uh, you know, could have been blacklisted by the RCMP. I remember the RCMP mm-hmm. would like, they'd go door knocking in Saskatchewan to see if you were a supporter of communism. And if you were, they'd like, you know, throw you in jail, quote unquote. But So that's the real, I think he hit the nerve at the right time, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's critical for a populist movement to succeed. The timing has to be perfect. Right. Um, I don't know. What do you think? It's, you're, you, you're right on the money with that. It, it's such a strong sentiment, but for that to, to actualize into some political phenomenon, mm-hmm. it has, the timing has to be precise. And that's one of the reasons why the, the Reform Party of Canada, the, the predecessor to the Conservative Party, is... Uh, is subject to much political inquiry and and uh, and analysis even to this day is because no populist, no protest party was able to transform itself to form eventually, although there were a couple of changes into the Canadian alliance and then the merger, but actually succeed in forming national government. And... The reform, as as a scholars put it, really tapped into the sentiments after what happened with 1993 with the, the blunder of Maloney and the, the CFA 18 contracts. But the timing was right in that uh, I think Canadians were ready for a change from a brokerage system. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. A brokerage system, right? So it's a system where um, the current parties simply aren't representing the will of the people anymore. And I think, honestly, like, parties know this, and they incorporate elements of these populism movements into their party to grab those voters, to show that they're concerned, as concerned as they are. Um, And suddenly that populism movement is part of a party's platform. And I couldn't see any more greater parallel than the current conservative government of Canada and Andrew Scheer his party platform reminds me a lot, as we've discussed in our previous podcast, of the PPC in some of the res- in some respects of less government, more individual freedom, more tax breaks for for regular people. Those are things that like populists on the right would say are staunchly theirs. So, anyways, I think that that's the way the flames are doused when these establishment parties incorporate these populist movement elements where it doesn't boil over. It doesn't, doesn't boil over where um, suddenly these populist movements get to a point where they can form government. Um, and so, but Donald Trump is the anomaly. A lot of people say he's the anomaly, but I would say that Trump is a populist, but he's still a Republican. And some of the things he does and says, it's, he's, he's still the president, he's still a leader of a Republican party. So while he might be populist in many people's eyes, he also does a lot of things that a Republican leader would do. He holds rallies. He um, 
has meetings with heads of states. He says the typical government, we we're going to work towards an agreement and, you know, all that stuff. That's typical government bullshit, pretty much. You know, it's like the necessary requirements of a president. Um, but there's other things where he's very much a populist. What do you think is that threshold when um, people who supported a populist movement now see that person in a Republican, Democrat, establishment party? Is there a point where those supporters say, he's just like the rest of them? I don't vote for him anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. Do you think that there's a lot of populist supporters who um, are very skeptical of their leaders joining bigger parties and being the leader of those parties? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not an expert in like political behavior, voting behavior. I'm not uh, a political historian by no means. But, you know, my, my very humble prediction is that uh, it's so unclear because there are, for example, there's populist sentiment that's always going to be against any party that that forms a government that tries to be big tent, which right. is which may be legitimate, but it's it's hard to work with because you have to accommodate, especially in a, in a country that has this national this this overarching sovereignty, and then there's different nations that are playing underneath it. It's mm-hmm. it's so hard to just always listen to or adhere to populist concern. Yeah, but there are also real cases in which the populist promise is not delivered once in government. Right. But then the complication is, is that because the politicians are turning away from it? Is it just an empty promise? Or is it, again, like we've discussed many times in previous podcasts, that they're faced with this political reality in which they can't bring that populist element into their their policy announcements and legislation right. and some of the, the decisions that they make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think that going off that same point, big tent parties need to be very concerned always when they stop listening to the people, if that makes sense. So an example was the 2016 federal election in the United States. I honestly felt like Hillary Clinton wasn't talking to the people or wasn't listening to the people anymore. And um, I felt that when she was campaigning, it felt like she was talking to them and not, and Trump was very much talking with them. And I think that's the key for many populists is that their ability to tap that nerve of saying, they promised you all types of uh, economic prosperity it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years, you're worse off, housing prices are higher, you simply can never afford your, the own city that you live in. Oh, by the way, the job that you have, that company is gone, they're moved down to Mexico and China. Um, and you're like, everybody Everybody went in every single way away from you. And yet those are the same people asking for your vote. See, that taps that nerve, it speaks to someone on an emotional level, and it tells you that the whole system doesn't work for you. And the timing has to be perfect, but it also depends on your opponent advocating for the establishment. Mm -hmm. You see, if Hillary Clinton said, you know what, you have some good points, and we're going to do our best to make sure that um, those jobs come back to America. We're going to make sure that you have um, 
uh, support systems in place, all those things, you could kind of see people might give her a chance. But when Trump goes right for the jugular and says, they don't, they've never cared about you. I care about you and give me four years and I'll show you I care about you. I don't know. What do you think? No, that's, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and I feel like, uh, in the election, the presidential election, Trump did emotionally connect yes. as to whether the, you know the policy, the, the disputes and the debates around policy, and whether that's a good thing or not. That's beyond my my ability to analyze. <laughs> but what I know for a fact that is, it connected on an emotional level that did not translate in the polls. Right. They they deceived the polls. And that was a big shock uh, yeah. to, to to Americans at this or internationally that, that thought that uh, Donald Trump was going to lose because so many people had said it it's just not possible at all. And we have a we have a, say, a similar case with the, the reform. Mm-hmm. It's Brian Mulroney has made many uh, promises as well as actions that were favorable to the West, but. There are so many things at the same time that just slip through his fingers mm-hmm. that really riled up the voters too. Right. And the other thing about Canadian and Western alienation is that it's historical and it's also very systemic in that ever since the beginning, you know, John A. Macdonald's national policy, the fact that there's more seats allocated to Quebec and Ontario, mm-hmm. in which uh, prevents, well, systemically prevents the West from actually staking a claim in, in the national agenda. Mm. So those things are, are, are so delicate, but we see the, the, exa- the, the examples of populism coming up in different countries, and mm-hmm. it's, it's quite an interesting phenomenon, populism. Yeah, it is. And again, I think, I think part of it is um, a reluctance by some of the more establishment parties to not incorporate um, that anger and that sentiment into their platform and to basically pretend it doesn't exist. Um, and also, it also there's also a rise of very charismatic leaders that are, again, speaking on an emotional level um, to people. And, you know, when you speak to people on an emotional level, you you get ardent supporters. And I noticed that especially when it comes to protests right here in Toronto. Um, and nothing against... Pro- I think protesting is great. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a lot of protests that I think are quite valid. But um, I think that when people feel that their families, their children, their, their parents, something that's very personal is threatened, or at least they take a public policy and make it personal, they will go in the snow, in the ice, in the rain, and spend entire days protesting because the issue is so important and personal. Mm-hmm. It's like many women in Canada who took buses down to Washington to protest Donald Trump's inauguration. It's like after the whole grab them by their private parts, you know, many women were like, I need to go down there and pro. This is an atrocity. Like, it hits me on such an emotional level. But for many supporters of Trump, they saw through that and they said, well, he's not that kind of person. So it's a very interesting time. So my, my thinking with populism movements is that parties need to have their ear to the ground always. Like that is their goal. 
if you're a Republican or a Democrat, your goal is to have your ear to the ground street. Like you have to understand what the street is saying all the time. And the moment people are dissuaded from you, that's not only a moment of concern. I think it's a moment of bigger concern when people are like, I don't even like either of you. You guys are sick. This place is corrupt. All of you are taking my money. Like that's when every politician in every establishment party should be like, let's time out here. Let's think about what it is we're advocating for. Otherwise, you give rise to the Donald Trumps and the Duterte's and the Maxime Bernier's. You give rise because the ignored suddenly become enamored by these populist movements. I don't know. That's my armchair psychological assessment. <laughs> <laughs> my, my comment on populism is this. There is a, a, a general tendency around the world, and especially in academic circles, to see it as a threat. Yeah. And on, on many occasions, rightfully so, if it gets very anti-democratic, if it gets too radical, uh, I, I do support that position. But it's also important to... Um, to, to recognize that for the populist sentiments that are found on legitimate grounds, whatever that may be, sure. it's important to not skirt that off to the side and say, well, those are illegitimate concerns. Yeah. And appreciate as and acknowledge the value that they're legitimate grievances. Exactly. Exactly. And the moment that they're illegitimized is the moment that populist movements are are right. rising. Um, and, you know, whether it's Western alienation in Canada, you know, Donald Trump in the United States, whatever it is, um, there's a heightened level of dismissiveness in today's politics, which is what Strong and Free is all about. And it's exactly that. It's about helping everybody understand a little bit more about parties that you might write off, parties that you might dismiss topics and ideas that you might not agree with. You know, despite the fact that it was our lowest listened to podcast, our series on abortion, to me, opened my eyes up about the pro-life movement um, and the arguments in favor of pro-life and, you know, coming from it from a place of genuine curiosity and not from a place where I'm directly impacted by it allows me to explore it. So now, if I, again, if I were a woman and I had an abortion, I would probably have a very different ability to accurately uh, assess that entire debate as fulsomely as we did. Um, so I think the important thing here is to remove yourself as much as you can from the emotion, like almost like watch your emotions react to things, watch your emotions react to politicians that upset you and ask yourself, okay, this politician's upsetting me, but what, what's the underlying reason? Why is this person getting so many supporters? And I think that's part of a step towards better discourse. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. It, you, we have to try as much as we can to understand without just acting on it and then letting the emotion, per, emotion prevail. And sometimes it's hard. I mean, yeah. we're, all, we're all human. Of but course. We have to make the, the active and conscious effort to... Yeah. Do it, and that's the only way we can have a balanced discourse. That's right, exactly. It's that it's the effort that's the most important. Um, but, anyways, we just want to do this uh, podcast on populism and the rise of populism, um, and help you understand a little bit more about populist movements. And that, again, it is not 
just right or just left. It populism um, uh, emerges, I think, when the establishment parties completely stop listening to the people. And um, if you are part of an establishment party, just make sure that your your number one goal is to always listen. Um, I, I forget someone had said this. Someone much smarter than me said, like, the goal of any uh, party is to basically be the the will of the people. And so I think that's important. Like you, the moment you, you're sitting in a room and you're deciding policy and you didn't consult with anybody, you can just say, the it's like the, you know, the more you do that, the more chances of a populist movement arising. Um, but anyways, that'll do it for us. It's just a quick episode on, on populism. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. If you did, if you didn't, let us know. Strongandfree2018 at gmail.com. Uh, S-T-R-O-N-G-A-N-D-F-R-E-E 2018 at gmail.com. Instagram, S-T-R-N-G-N-F-R-E-E. Let us know what your thoughts and let us know what you think about this whole uh, populism movement. And um, I'd love to hear from you. So if you have any great feedback, let us know. But that'll do it from us for this week. Um, as always, stay balanced. Stay informed. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Strong and Free, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the information that you need on the topics of the day. And remember, stay balanced, stay informed, 